Welcome to Undead Matter, a series of conversations about where life lies in the ever-turning matter of our universe. I'm Sophie J. Williamson, and throughout this series, we will bring together artists, poets, and writers with astronomers, deep-sea microbiologists, anthropologists, paleontologists, and geographers. Each offer their own perspective on our place within the infinite impermanence of life past, present, and possible. This time we delve into the potency of past lives, traumas, histories, and possibilities that are held within the silences between rock strata and between words, through a conversation between geographer Catherine Youssef and poet Mungmi Kim. Interweaving the conversation is a sound work by artist Shamika Raddock, and at the end of the podcast we listen to the full sound work as it reaches downwards to the geological substrata beneath our feet. I feel like I've stolen gobs of time. I feel like, uh, why am I apologizing? You know, because that seems like that might be part of where we start, actually. Because to have a radically transposed notion of the temporospatial mark. So my apologizing for technology or a cat or like the kind of minutiae that isn't minutiae that... It's also how I think of your question of silence or the undead uh, in a way. So what does it mean like in terms of cultural and disciplinary practices that I feel compelled to apologize for like making time that is different than like it's supposed to progress or it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be orderly or it's supposed to be tidy. And the kind of onus I feel, right? Yeah, absolutely. I made time balloon or shrink or do things that it's not supposed to do. I mean, maybe that is part of how we can begin, right? The question of the temporospatial mark and how it's harnessed. And to a large degree, what I sense and feel when I read your work is the violation or the violence, if you will, that accompanies these temporal spatial marks in regimes of capping experience or sensation. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's one of the things I've been very interested in is how scripts of time organize people and organize matter and the possibility to reside in the temporality of one's own in a sense that of particularly indigenous and blacks people that got caught up in the violence of colonial scripts of time and that sort of onus that you Mm -hmm. identified on production that production and progress and all these ways of scripting time is actually about stealing space and stealing relation and I think that's something that sort of I see happening in your poetry around the kind of violence of description. And one of the things that interests me in that reading your poems was the sort of durational capacities that you invest in language in a really sparse language. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of tension there between reimagining the sort of durational with a really kind of pared down language. So that might be another way to think about how we interact with the sort of violence of colonial scripts. Labor of house, child, belonging to. 
familias, implements, fellow feeling crude. Accumulation of land, cooking, reserve, line of. The number, belonging, heirs, isolated, belonging to, fellow feeling crude. Accumulation of land, belonging to, bearing, child rearing, and rear household, counting herds, possessions, bearing, rearing, the number belonging, heirs, isolated, belonging to, fellow feeling crude. The one thing that might be interesting for us to pursue is that juxtaposition between, say, the paring down and the re-releasing or relocating the durational Mm -hmm. and what that means in terms of imperialist logics or colonial ambitions. Because the paring down, I wonder whether that can actually be a what I'm calling a relocating or a kind of opening up. As a poet, I am very interested in not only the paring down as a kind of stripping, but rather as a kind of replenishing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that question of concentrating language, but also making it slightly strange. So, I mean, one of the things I've been really interested in recently is around this sort of term natural resources, which I see Mm -hmm. very much coming out of colonial and, you know, the way in which people were put into the natural resources category, but also that language is so normative and thinking about how do you sort of break those scripts and make that language strange again? Yes. As a way of not only thinking of language, but also historical process as something that's become so naturalized and a kind of a priori to one's own experience. And whether it's in poetry or whether it's in your field, the word that you're using, script, I find very interesting, right? Because it chimes in so usefully with regimentation, codification, normatization, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. And also kind of containment of people that were positioned outside of the European imagination, but sort of scripted into its geographies. For me, is a kind of question about how language gets used as a sort of monotemporality. So you've got this kind of attempt to produce a homogenous geography through colonialism and imperialism, but also this monotemporality through English. And I think that seems to be a question that you're constantly coming up against in your poems, is how to in some way, break with, but reinvigorate or activate a different kind of possibility to that language. Yeah, I think that's absolutely you know, central to how I practice. So in your own work, how do you think about this question of what's become moribund or the kind of anesthetized ways of thinking and being and perceiving? And how does that translate to the way that you want to practice in your field? Um, I mean, I think it's difficult because there's this real emphasis in the sciences and social sciences on a transparency of language. 
without the sort of acknowledgement that that transparency is a violence already. It's already instigated a set of violences. And, you know, here sort of someone like Eduardo Glisson's idea of opacity and thinking about what it means to it be exposed. So in these recent stories about the Anthropocene, for example, and this attempt to kind of name the origin as sort of golden spikes of geology, I've just been thinking about the flesh of geology. So who gets spiked by that like historical marker that sort of points to an origin story, but also raises a whole set of experiences in that sort of formation of a historical geography. I always feel like I'm in tension between disciplines in the sense that there's a certain amount of translation work, but also a complete desire to really acknowledge the brokenness of worlds that preceded the world that is being considered as broken now. So to think about those histories of brokenness that actually created the world in which climate change, extinction, etc., these are all a result of a much more severe geotrauma that was impacted on colonial peoples under that. I'm the sort of annoying person in the room that's always sort of talking about geotraumas that precede this identification of now the world in peril. That question of brokenness doesn't really hold in scientific languages because scientific languages from their inception are designed to erase. You have these snippets in your books of poems from historical records where that very violent erasure is very um, evident. One. Ascultation. The diagnostic technique in medicine of listening to the various internal sounds made by the human body. Also, the act of listening attentively. Second word, ectasis. Dilation or distension of a hollow organ. The state of being stretched beyond normal dimensions. Also, the lengthening of a syllable from short to long. Third word, ablation. Removal of a body part or the destruction of its function as by surgery, disease, or noxious substance. Two, the erosive process that reduces the size of glaciers. Three, removal of material from the surface of an object by vaporization, chipping, or other erosive processes. And the last, isthmus. One, a narrow organ passage or piece of tissue connecting two larger parts. Two, a narrow strip of land 
with water on both sides connecting two larger areas of land. I've been thinking all along about what gets initialized as science or scientific inquiry and how already merged that is with colonial ambitions. Like the human, in a way, is not a subject. The way that it purports scientific inquiry to have a a human as subject, in fact, it's stripped of any kind of humanness, right? Yeah, absolutely. We all know that it's a fiction, these separations between human, non-human, and inhuman. And yet it's a fiction that, that carries so much formation of thought and of language and of these apartheid really between relation that are established through colonialism and why it becomes so difficult to think in that kind of collectivity or it's almost like the commons has to be uncommon and we have to recognize those divisions before it can kind of become common again. You're also thinking about flora, fauna, humans. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Can you talk to me a little bit about your thinking around these sort of clusters of ideas? In some ways, it's about thinking about the human, but through the inhuman. So historically, the inhuman is sort of divided off as dead matter, but that also includes a subject position of the enslaved and indigenous people. And so what does it mean to think with a kind of dead category that is also a subjective category? And how might that tell us something about the kind of voids within the human as it's sort of currently presented and scripted to us in a sense? And I think for me, learning from Black and Indigenous studies, that there's a radical proposition in there to unlearn the world through unlearning the human, in a sense. So I guess I'm sort of interested in, I kind of think about them as orphan qualities, things and people and places that are kind of severed from relation and how we might think with a sort of orphan rather than the continuum of a sort of genealogy of of a kind of humanist subject, I guess. That's also about thinking about the world's on fire and that actually we have to think contingently about being in a breaking or broken earth and that actually a lot of people have been in broken earths for, you know, that colonialism has been breaking earths for a very long time and is still breaking futures in a sense. For me, it's about thinking about what's the kind of possibilities of intervening in that geotrauma. And that's a geotrauma that is experienced by humans, non-humans, and the sort of geophysical world alike, obviously in radically different ways. I guess what I'm thinking about now is very much how to make natural resources strange, how to really acknowledge the sort of alien quality of the world. Can you um, give me some examples of how that might be experienced? Because, I mean, I think this goes back to what you were saying about making language itself strange. 
because I, I can kind of picture it in terms of my own poetry writing, but I'm so curious how that might be in the world. It's a good question. And I think about it in, many, in some ways, very simple terms. Like, what does it mean to extract a piece of gold? What does it mean that a piece of gold at a certain historical moment can exchange with a person and there be no change in the syntax? So how does the category of the inhuman and its various modes of description actually allow this radical difference to pass through in the same kind of form of containment and process of valuation. So for me, it's about kind of disrupting those processes of valuation, but also the what are the languages that keep things still? So, you know, we all know we live in this multiplicity of a vibrant world that has so many different durations, and yet we still the thing to make a commodity. And I'm really interested in the different sort of durations of geology. Different materialities have different geochemical arrangements and, you know, different geochemical attractions. So we can think of like waste, for example, is just various minerals and molecules getting reattached in different formations. They're just not formations that are particularly kind of conducive to human life. All this dead matter has its own desire, in a sense, its own way of reformulating its communities. So I think it's thinking about those different durational possibilities and as they move across what it means to be a subject and the kinds of affiliations we have with places in the world and so many people who are violently removed from those places. Maybe it's about sort of thinking the commons through time rather than space. In environmental spaces and scientific spaces, there's lots of invoking of the future and the future as an obligation without a understanding really of how that future has been shaped like that kind of wanting to jump over those violent histories and and I see in your poetry this sort of you know constant recall to those histories and those positionings Sometimes it sort of feels like you're almost being a surveyor or a charter and you're trying to pull out these codes and these charts and these arrangements, um, but almost with a sort of scientific eye. (laughs) I am often like providing evidence, but trying to not objectify the evidence, but letting it speak around the edges of the evidence. I guess the other way to speak about this would be how does documentation happen and what is it? Partly, again, what are its extractive properties and what is its potential to be more than, as I'm suggesting, a document, right? So that very strange interarticulation between something that's dead and something that's flourishing. What you were talking about, what holds these things together, is also a way of thinking about 
possible sites of politics, in a sense, with a pre-political politics of where to take them apart, in a sense. And maybe we could just talk about that relationship between politics and poetry, because to me, it seems as though there's much more potential for a possible politics within poetry than there is within politics, if that makes sense. Because I'm very excited to hear how that lands for you in terms of thinking about where of politics, but also thinking about what poetics can do or poetry can do, not in service of politics, but in activating a different kind of politics, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely stress the second part of what you just said, because I think often people want to address the efficacy of poetry to do political work. And I think that's so counterintuitive for me because it's not asking poetry to, in a sense, chime in with the structures that already exist that are, in fact, the root of the problem. So in a way, it's a kind of rejoinder to the problem, or it's asking that the problem remain unproblematized. Absolutely. Right? To formulate it as a kind of efficacy is, in some sense, reproducing the very problems that we would want to, in some sense, root out, right? Absolutely. So for me, part of what poetry or a certain idea of poetics is the potential, not ability, right? The potential to find ways of asking the question again and again, right? To problematize how we proceed, right? How we make affiliations, how we speak to each other. So trying to create a space of attention and perception. So for me, the question isn't, can poetry enact something on the body of politics, but rather, can it create the possibility of asking questions again and again, right? Useful, new, on thought, on anticipated questions. It's almost as though the relation between poetry and politics sort of re-describes the elements, but it you know can often put back in those silences and put in those pauses so that actually the weight of those often violent modes of description become re-weighted in a sense. They're given their gravity again, rather than these sort of smooth languages. So I think of natural resources as a kind of smooth language that can, you know, can go anywhere on the globe. It can go to the deep sea, it can go mine meteorites, and it doesn't change as a result of those encounters. That its whole kind of um, organization as a genre is about extraction, but not the sort of encounter with difference. So it's always erasing as it goes. So I think in a parallel way, trying to sort of re-describe or rethink geographies through different languages of description, and also kind of remember how geography means writing the world and how language is so much a part of the colonial experience of describing. Describing is always a 
precursor to forms of extraction. Yeah, 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 yeah. The sort of politics of describing differently always seems to be there, for me anyway. I mean, you talked about evidence and the way in which the push to make evidence function differently, in a sense, acknowledge its role in the forms of violation and the forms of deception. There was something you said in an interview recently about devotional languages, and it made me think of like sort of devotional black cinema, and a language that was devoted towards uh, recognition of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. violence and history and maybe sort of silences. The way in which I read it was that we can't just engage with erasure, but actually there's sort of offering of a devotional language mm-hmm, that kind of changes maybe the sort of aesthetics of feeling or the theorizing of sensibility. Yes. Um, and where that has become so absent, like that sense of cherishing or to be cherished or to know how to cherish something or some other, what that might be able to enact, right? I don't mean between people, but I mean on a much larger scale. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it made me think about what would a sort of devotional geography look like? You know, obviously there's many examples of, but how would we write geographies of foregrounded care rather than, you know, the sort of containment and extraction? I think there was a line that um, you had in one of your poems talking about, and I take this as being a colonial action of making famine where abundance lies or something like that. I mean, I think about that a lot in terms of what it means to make such an impoverished world, like to take all that abundance and all that generosity, in a sense, of the world in its fullest sense and actually make something so mean. You know, I think of colonial geographies as, I mean, they're not just involved in geotrauma, but they're also very mean geographies in terms of their recognition of the possibilities of the world and those possibilities become a threat and they get shut down and often in very violent ways. Here I'm reminded of a line that that actually was spoken to me by someone that made it into one of my books. And the speaker said um, verbatim, the place I'm from is no longer on any map. Yeah. And I mean, I think, again, this sort of, I think, circles back in a sense to the way in which language makes maps and how you unlanguage or relanguage missing maps or missing archives of experience and sensibility. The thing for me is really helpful as a writing geographies and reading poetry alongside 
is about that attention to time and duration and like time in language rather than a language about time. So thinking about how spaces are made through those durational attentions that you talk about feels like a a way into or a, a way to cut some of those colonial maps and rethink their arrangements and the way they take time you know how racism for example takes time like it takes people's time and attention and you know the imposition of that on which is funny because in a in a discipline that's about space so much of spatial violence is enacted through these scripts of time this is the body and we live it large as i large as tips of their fingers touching or not. Women on a clover field where brown rabbits have just fed. Rise of line of women stretching to the rise of land. No one moves. Every muscle moves. No one approaches. In their mouths, more than breath, more than each sound buzzed inside the inside of the mouth as large as. Catherine, are you familiar with the poetry of the American writer Lorene Niedeker? She's one of the first writers that I read who helped me understand geological time, I think. Is there such a thing? I mean, am I making that up, geological time? No, you, no, there's absolutely geologic time gets scripted in a very particular way. It sort of emerges as the deep time against which human time is differentiated. But at the same time, the historical origins of that are that the same paleontologists are mapping beings at the same time that they're mapping deep time. So there's this like, co-natal moment where the description of beings, of human beings as racialized subjects comes into the world at the same time as the understanding of deep time, so the history of the earth. So there's this weird parallel moment where race and the earth come into being through colonial science at a very particular moment. And then they sort of go in different directions in some ways, but there's always this root in a sense of race in deep time, which is very counterintuitive because we always think of deep time as the opposite of all the sort of short time of human flowering around. There's a sort of tension to that, that for me, rocks can never quite be rocks. There's geographies attached to those things that seem so kind of, um, you know, I think here of like something like the gold standard, for example, it can kind of go into a Swiss bank and sort of be cleaned of its associative geographies and qualities and places. So maybe part of kind of reactivating language is putting those geographies and temporalities and places back into that thing that seems so autonomous. So yes, there is geologic time. (laughs) Geologic time and deep time have come to the fore because of the attempt to name a new epoch 
the Anthropocene, which is understood as the epoch of humans, of Anthropos, and the human-driven geologic or geomorphic organization of the world. So it forces a sense of understanding humans as geologic agents and agents that are operating on a planetary level. But the Anthropocene is quite a contested term, both within geology and outside of geology. But I think maybe it becomes a useful place to think about these long durations and the possibility of a kind of, you know, picking up on your poetry manga of, of a durational capacity um, and how we kind of pay attention to durational capacity. Who even came this way, bellow, or saw? Thirty and five books, paper, script, document, vows unwritten, kinglists, proverbs, praise, phrases. They say it is the ocean, indistinguishable water horizon net of worth false vocalization of the consonantal text, rose thorn and reported ocean, the beginning of things. What most visible staged above treeline, plural, stellar, famish, viaducts to carry away and bring back. Sewer and thread, recast, deliberate, meteorite. What kind of listening is it? Exoskeletal, complete with spongy matter. Catch, sieve, salve. Liveness is really, in some ways, is a problem for me in terms of thinking through the work of the inhuman and the sort of intimacy between the inhuman and the inhumane, that what is kind of configured as life often kind of gets given center stage or the kind of central script, and it often is a particular kind of life that's noticed and paid attention to, and I think in some ways coming through the inhuman is a way to come back at life in a slightly oblique manner so that we don't take those scripts of life as self-evident because the way in which life has historically been organized has a very particular shape about what life should be, how we should understand it, what life is important, whose life gets to matter. So I think maybe what geology and a kind of deep time approach gives us in thinking about the future is to think around the partialities or a kind of apartheids of life and how they've been racially scripted particularly, but also in other ways between human, non-human, inhuman, and the kind of forms of division that allow us to 
engage in, uh, you know, such monumental sort of environmental destructions. In some ways, life is both the problem and the possibility. And there's a tension there for me around that arrangement. And that there's something about the inhuman that actually is counterintuitive. And I think the counterintuitiveness maybe pushes us further into thinking about the possibilities of intimacy and not understanding that intimacy as also connected to forms of erasure, so forms of inhumanity. It becomes about the syntax, right, of life, death, where we see the points in these events, life, liveliness, is always in some ways pushing at the sort of origin, death, birth, futurity. So it sort of organizes time in very particular ways. And it's impossible to talk about the world without those languages, but it's also like they're also invested with this really sort of sedimented historical arrangement, particularly through colonialism, in terms of what I've been paying attention to. So the script of life is always it's always producing illegitimate and illegible offspring. I guess for me often, as a person, as a writer, I'm trying to unshed, unshackle these encroachments, right? these pronouncements and announcements of what, what, what is intelligible, what is unintelligible, and just sort of renegotiating those very tight givens for me, that is a kind of liveness, right? That is a kind of active life force, not simply to abandon or substitute these tight givens, but to almost wade through them in ways that are unexpected. Right? It's never about substituting or abandoning, because I think going back to the question of poetry and politics, it, it would be a similar kind of question for me of if you simply abandon or strip or substitute X for Y, in a way you haven't really in some sense negotiated with that, I think, fully. What I'm reminded of um, is how to be ever more mindful of those divisions, right? Those hard parameters that are always working on us, life, death, origin, human, not, you know, not human, and being able to understand that these contours or boundaries are absolutely acting on us all the time, right? There's a kind of coercive way of living life under these givens or these scripts, and just being able to have a little bit of, again, possible reflection on how these things are acting on us constantly, I think might invite a little liveliness, past, future, present. This series of podcasts is produced by Undead Matter, initiated and convened by Sophie J. Williamson. For more information about the Undead Matter program, please visit on Instagram at undead underscore matter.